thanks for listening in to the So We Speak podcast. We're glad to be back with you on a rainy Friday morning here in Oklahoma City. Really, it's a joy to get to do this podcast together. Uh, A lot of times when I talk to people about the podcast, they don't realize that most of the time we're not in the same room when we do these, but it's pretty nice to get to sit here together and and record it. It is. So, I hope everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving break, and uh, we're going to dive into a book this morning that... You know, when you're, when you're thinking about which books to do on this, obviously you have 66 to choose from, and we're, we're still debating on whether or not we're going to do the Apocrypha. So 66 plus to do in this series, but mm-hmm. there are certain books that you really are excited to do, and you can't figure out if you want to save them to the end, or if you want to go ahead and do them now because they're exciting uh, to get to talk through. And Jeremiah is certainly one of those books that I've been excited to do since we talked about doing this. It's one of my favorite books to teach. And at the same time, study. It's been a book that has meant a lot to me in my own quiet times and working through different resources, which we'll talk about here at the end. Uh, just books that I've even read with my quiet time on the book of Jeremiah. So have you spent a lot of time in this book? No, actually I've spent a lot of time in sections. Two things I think put people off in this book. One is Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. He doesn't have yeah. a very good message because of the historical time in which he's set. But secondly, it's also a very long book, and as you go into it, you, you can get lost in it. And I think hopefully this overview will help people with the themes to be looking for, the historical background, and a little bit of the structure, make it a little less daunting to challenge this book. Yeah, this is something most people don't know off the top of their heads just because of the way it's arranged. Jeremiah is actually the longest book in your Bible. Now, we typically think, well, Psalms has got to be the longest because it has 150 chapters, takes up the most pages. But the difference between Psalms and Jeremiah is twofold. Number one, Jeremiah is poetry and prophecy intermingled with narrative, and there's less white space on the pages. And secondly, Jeremiah is not written in the same kind of verse structure, chapter structure that Psalms is. Instead, you have these alternating sections, but you get really long chapters in Jeremiah. So if you look at the Hebrew word count and the amount of letters used, Jeremiah is is far and away the longest book in the Old Testament. And you'll know this when you read it, because it's one of those books that just seems like you are in it forever. If you sit down and you want to read Jeremiah start to finish, it's going to take you close to two hours to get it done. Way longer than, I mean, even even the Gospel of Matthew or Luke, which are long books, are uh-huh. only going to take you about an hour yeah. to get done. So Jeremiah is the longest book in, in the Bible, and there's another unique feature that makes it an interesting book to me, and that is its prophet, its, its namesake, Jeremiah, is the character, maybe with the exception of David, whom we know the most about in Scripture in terms of their internal life, their goals, their emotions, what's happening to them. Now, we don't know a ton about Jeremiah before we get into the action of the book, but Mm -hmm. once we get to the point in his life where he's called to be a prophet of the Lord, we know more about him than almost anybody else. And the other interesting thing is, Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. But other than that, he's not discussed much in the rest of the Bible. Right. Uh, Whereas somebody like David we can construct maybe a more in-depth portrait of David, but you have to go four or five different places to do it. you got to go to... it together. Yeah, Samuel, Kings, you got to go to Psalms to get his own internal 
life and the things that he wrote. Then you obviously have the history and stuff written about him. All of that is compressed into one in the book of Jeremiah. And it creates a very interesting way to read through the life of a faithful follower of God. Obviously not a Christian, but uh, he's Jewish, he's prophesying, he's believing in the promises of God. Uh, In terms of what Hebrews talks about, or even what Paul talks about in Romans and Galatians, he was one of those people who, who believed God, and we would, we would say he was credited with righteousness, even though he's not believing in the explicit promise of the gospel. He's believing that God is going to do what he's promised to do through Abraham to the people of Israel. And so his faithfulness is a model of what we would consider now Christian faithfulness. Right. And maybe particularly because if my chronology is right on this, he prophesied, he was in ministry, for a little over 40 years. Mm-hmm. Don't know exactly how many, but we know it was more than 40 years. And that he was born, I believe, close to Jerusalem, but mm-hmm. a little outside Jerusalem. He probably received his calling, this uh, oracle, in his maybe late teens, right? 20 years old. I mean, so he looks to me like a young man when he takes up this burden, this ministry, and fulfills it successfully for over 40 years. Right. Yeah, the, the background that we know on Jeremiah is really interesting. He's he's young when he receives the call of the Lord, and the only historical info we have on him is that it is in chapter one, verse one, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin. And when you read this with a careful eye, you ask a pretty important question when you run across this: Why, if he and his father are priests, are they in the town of Anathoth? Right. And maybe an, uh, a question on top of that would be, where is the town of Anathoth? <laughs> and it, Anathoth is actually a suburb of Jerusalem. It would have been a suburb then as much as it is now basically part of Jerusalem because it's expanded. It's just a few miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. And there's some debate about why a priestly family would have been outside of Jerusalem because, you know, the priests are serving in the temple. So because of what had happened in Israel, you have priestly families in Jerusalem. You also have priests in Dan who are pseudo-priests. Uh-huh. We would consider them apostate Up priests. Up in the far north. Uh-huh. But Jeremiah and his family seem like faithful priests from everything you get to read. So there's some controversy over what happened, but, but likely the priest Abiathar, who's a big-time player in the, in the David and Solomon times of Israel, gets expelled from the temple. And scholars think that Jeremiah and his family are probably descendants of Abiathar. And one, one commentator makes the, the comment, the observation, that Anathoth is, is a small town. We're talking a country town here. Uh-huh. Definitely not big enough to have more than one priestly family. Probably like seven-man football. Yeah, they're probably they're, they're not even playing 11-man football. They're <laughs> B or C uh, in the, at the Anathoth High School. So... Their family is displaced. It's not that uncommon to see priestly families who live somewhere and then go in to serve for a period of time or their children going to serve for a period of time. But we don't get the indication that Jeremiah's family is doing that. We get the indication that they've actually been cast out from the normal priestly order. And the only reason I think that's worth mentioning is because I think it gives us an interesting backdrop into Jeremiah's self-conception of who Mm -hmm. he is as a prophet. Uh So we open the book... And he is called by God to be a prophet. And God is 
pretty clear with him up front in chapter 1 that this is not going to be a pleasant life as a prophet of God. And, and by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize Jeremiah is a prophet for 40 years. He only ever has two genuine converts. I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah. 40 years of faithful ministry, you have two converts. Neither of them are mainstream. Neither of them are powerful people. Neither of them help Jeremiah tremendously. I mean, Baruch is, is one of his converts. He becomes his past, his prophetic assistant. Uh-huh. And uh, he is helpful in some ways, but nobody's advancing Jeremiah's social status or funding and bankrolling his ministry. Uh, instead, he gets Baruch, who is suffer, suffers just like he does, and Ebed-Melech, who is a eunuch, who ends up leaving town pretty quickly after he converts to the, uh, the faith that Jeremiah is discussing. So God tells him this, though, at the beginning. So in chapter 1, the Lord calls Jeremiah. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah says, Whoa, I'm, I'm only a youth. That's why we think he's probably a teenager. Uh-huh. And, and God says to him, don't, be, don't say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. And then he says, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. And this is the goal of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And then, th- this is so cool, he, he basically takes him to prophet school for a few minutes in verse 11 through the end of the chapter where he says, okay, I'm going to give you a vision and then you tell me what you see. And we're just going to make sure that everything's synced up here to, to make sure you're seeing the right thing. The first uh-huh. one is a branch, then a boiling pot. And God schools him in what it's like to be a prophet. And the last thing I want to say on the calling is God does something very interesting and I think very instructive at the end of chapter 1 with his calling. So after he's he showed him the visions, they've talked about it, he says to him in verse 17, Dress for work, arise, say everything that I've commanded, do not be dismayed, and behold, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, and its officials, and priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, because I am with you, declares the Lord. And God has to remind Jeremiah of this, half a dozen times throughout the book, that the prophetic calling that Jeremiah has requires supernatural support and fortification and encouragement from the Lord in order to be carried out. That's kind of a stunning way to start his ministry, don't you think? It really is, and particularly as we go on and see all the challenges that he faces, he really is one man against the institutions of his time, and mm-hmm. you think about that from a, a mature man, what, how much more when you think about it as someone in their late teens? Right. Yeah, I've always wondered about Jeremiah. We get a great glimpse into his psyche. So mm-hmm. he he's called by the Lord. He says, "Whoa, you know, I'm a youth." He's probably got some. He's probably got some kind of check in his mind that, like we mentioned earlier, they're priests. But they're not active priests. And so God calls him to be a prophet, but he 
he kicks against that a little bit to say, but yeah, but what kind of prophet? And then God shows him what he's going to be, and he's like, whoa, I don't know if this is me. And God says, well, I'm actually going to make you the kind of person that is that kind of prophet. And the whole calling motif is interesting in the prophets. You get, obviously, Isaiah's is the most famous. The train of the, of the glory of the Lord fills the temple, and he says, who should I send? And you get the greatest missionary verse of all time. Uh-huh. Here I am, send me. And uh, that's a pretty emphatic call. Ezekiel's is a call unlike anything we see in Scripture. It, mm-hmm. it is bizarre and wacky and the glory of the Lord and the wheels and all of that and the chariot, the mobile throne of God comes down and he's overwhelmed for a few days. And Jeremiah's is much more like what I think calling looks like for most people today, whether that's calling in ministry whether that's somebody, some, somebody understanding that God has given you a mission to accomplish or uh-huh. a specific goal to achieve, the insecurity, the lack of confidence, the uh, feeling of inadequacy that Jeremiah has, I, I've always thought resonates really strongly with the way that we perceive what God's calling us to do today. Mm-hmm. Well, there's his feeling of inadequacy, as natural as that may be, reminds me a lot of Moses. Mm-hmm. Of course, many, many hundreds of years before, but Moses objecting to God also, you know, I don't speak well, and right. I'm really not qualified for this. And, you know, then Joshua, after Moses, who's, you know, a youth and a daunting task, and he says, I will be with you. Mm-hmm. I will strengthen you. Take courage. Tells Moses, I'll tell you what to speak. You just have to be faithful. Right. And I see echoes of that with Jeremiah. Okay, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I think that that's 100% accurate. In fact, I think there's more to it than that mm-hmm. in the sense that there's some debate about this, and I know we've talked about this a little bit in the podcast on Deuteronomy, but there's some debate as to how the Old Testament should be arranged. Uh-huh. And I'm sympathetic, although not committed, to the view that there is at least a theological center through many of the books of the Old Testament that are referred to as the Deuteronomistic history. Uh-huh. Now, you can go a lot further than this and say that they were all edited and redacted by the same person, this Deuteronomist, and you can get into whether or not uh, the source material and what we have matches up. I'm not making a case for that at all. What I am saying is there's a strain of the Old Testament that begins in Deuteronomy and goes through um, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and it has the same theological resonant center. To uh-huh. it. Now, most of that probably written by Samuel. A lot of it written by some kind of court historian when it get when you get to First and Second Kings. Some people think that those are end up being edited uh, in some ways as a whole. That'll be interesting when we get to First and Second Kings. Right. But what's fascinating about what you just said is all of that is predicated on the ministry of Moses. So mm-hmm. it begins in Deuteronomy with, with some long speeches from Moses, and those become the theological cornerstone of the entire Old Testament. Right. Especially this bit of the Old Testament that's in this line of, of thinking called the Deuteronomistic history. I've thought for some time that the Deuteronomistic history is incomplete at the end of 2 Kings. Mm-hmm. So you have the hope of the return from exile in 2 Kings. Right. You have uh, this little glimmer of, of hope. When you 
when you think about it, though, part of the part of the theme of First and Second Kings is the prophetic word in relationship with power structures like the kingdom of Israel and Judah, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. You really need a prophet when it comes to the writings of First and Second Kings and the Deuteronomistic history to make sense of what's going on. And I think Jeremiah is that prophet. It's interesting you say that. Let me interject a little historical note so you can kind of track with what we're talking about here. So First and Second Kings goes from, oh, the period, let's just say, after David, you, know, you have Saul, David, Solomon. Think about the 10th century, so 1,000 to about 900-ish. I'm rounding all this off. Then think about the kings, First and Second Kings, going from about 900 B.C., to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., so a little over 300 years, and all the kings through that time period, I'm simplifying this, and then the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. Well, near the end of that time period of 1 Kings, what Cole's talking about, you have this King Josiah from about 627 to 609, and this is right in the sweet spot of Jeremiah, and prophesying about the Assyrians who are losing power in this time period, just as the Babylonians are gaining power. Well, after the turn of the century, around 600, by the way, that's when Daniel is taken away. So you see these prophets coming in, mixing in with the kings. And then let's get to about 586. Jeremiah is still there. He's still prophesying, still talking about God's judgment, which we'll get to in a moment. But the last king is a guy named Zedekiah, and 2 Kings basically finishes with uh, Jerusalem being conquered by the Babylonians, Zedekiah being led away in chains, so to speak. It's a really tragic scene at the end. Jeremiah is here for that. Well, the Babylonians put a guy named Gedaliah in charge. He's sort of their puppet king. Well, some of the Israelites decide they're going to kill him, and they do. And Jeremiah's like, guys, you're, you're really going against God's plan here. And so the Babylonians are angry, and so basically this book of Kings ends in this time when Jerusalem is destroyed. Jeremiah goes on a little further because the people that killed Gedaliah, the puppet king, are afraid of the Babylonians, and so they flee to Egypt, and they make... Jeremiah, go with them. Mm -hmm. And that's right near the end of the book of Jeremiah. So I just want right. you to see the interleaving here of Jeremiah is prophesying right at the end of the time of the kings. It mm -hmm. dovetails. So you make a good point. As you see this theme running through of the Deuteronomistic history into First and Second Kings, Jeremiah is the prophet right at the tail of that. Right. That's great background because it, 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 it highlights what I'm trying to point out, which is Moses brings the people out of Egypt and has a prophetic ministry over the people of God, the promises of God, reminding them of his character. Jeremiah takes the people back to Egypt. Yes. We think of the exile as going to Babylon, which is true. It's yes. geographically true. It's spiritually true in terms of the New Testament. The spiritual narrative that we want to be reminded of, though, is a reverse exodus motif. Mm -hmm. So the people come out of Israel, they come out of Egypt into Israel, they are unfaithful there, God brings judgment, 
Jeremiah is the prophet who takes the people back to Egypt. And it's likely that Jeremiah dies in Egypt. Right. Um, against his will. He doesn't want to go, but he's forced to go. Right. And so at the end of the Deuteronomistic history, at the end of a cycle that lasts somewhere around 1,000 years, 800 to 1,000 years before uh-huh. when we date the Exodus, Israel comes full circle back into bondage. This time it's not just the bondage of a captor. It's the bondage of their own sin and unfaithfulness. Jeremiah has prophesied the downturn, and God is actually going to deliver them again from physical Babylon, from spiritual Babylon in Egypt, and he's going to bring them back into the land to set up the, the last phase of the Old Testament, and in turn the beginning phase of the New Testament. In a lot of ways, while Jeremiah is not the last chronological prophet in the Old Testament, he mm-hmm. is the last word on prophecy right. in the Old Testament. Now, when we do Ezekiel, we'll have to talk about that, because Ezekiel is parallel in some ways. Right. They're, they're prophesying in an overlapping time frame, just barely. Right. Uh, and Ezekiel is going to talk about what it looks like to return from exile. But as far as the big cycle of the Old Testament, from Exodus to exile. Jeremiah is the last word on Israel. So we hit Jeremiah's calling, and in a beautiful chiastic fashion, we've already hit the ending. So let's get closer to the middle here. I want to break this book up into six sections, because it's impossible to go through it chronologically in the time that we have it because it's so long. Uh-huh. We've hit calling. Number two would be questioning. This is part of Jeremiah's personality as a prophet. Number three would be his proclamation. What are the unique things that he proclaims as a prophet? Number four would be the covenant that he talks about, which we'll, we'll read some passages from that sets up our expectations for the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Fifth would be suffering. Yeah. Jeremiah goes through an un- unbelievable amount of suffering. And six would be the end of his prophecy, the end of his life in Egypt, we've already touched on. So let's move from calling into questioning. One of the things that's most unique about Jeremiah is you get these little autobiographical sections of his life, and they're usually negative. So Jer- while Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet, you could make a case that he, c- that he should be referred to as the complaining prophet. <laughs> Uh, he has some hard times, and he lets God know about it, which uh-huh. is a really important thing. We've talked about that a couple times on the podcast. But he goes into a, a rant worthy of Job in chapter 20. Uh, he begins it by saying in verse 7, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. He's talking about his calling here. Uh-huh. And then in verse 14, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making me very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? That's a pretty dark moment for Jeremiah. It really is. And it, 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 you have to ask the question, are prophets supposed to be talking like this? <laughs> Uh, what's going on here? Well, I, I like this because it takes the prophets off of a pedestal and kind of, a, oh, these were the faithful people of old that 
did their job in a kind of a sanitized sort of version of their life, you know, stained glass window version of the prophet, and brings it down into modern day ministry, and I don't mean just for ordained ministers, but mm -hmm. brings it down into ordinary life in that basically he had pain, he had sickness, he had struggles, he had disappointments, he had high moments, he had low moments. He had times when his parents were, gosh, we wanted you to be a doctor and here you are running around and everybody's yeah. mad at you. In other words, he lived real life and I think it reflects on what does faithfulness look like. Mm -hmm. Faithfulness looks like doing things regardless of the circumstances and being so committed. And at the same time, faithfulness looks like pouring out your heart to God. Mm -hmm. And I, I hear in this, obviously, echoes of Job, almost word for word. And then, of course, David in the Psalms, God, I don't understand what you're mm -hmm. doing. There's a powerful lesson for us in that. Yeah, you certainly see a lot of people talking this way in Scripture. Uh -huh. And it's, a, it's not just an appropriate way to talk to God. It is an essential way to talk to God. The thing that's interesting about Jeremiah is he talks like this a lot. There's four or five little snippets in this book where he says, What am I doing? You have deceived me. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I, I don't like this. I'm suffering. Are you listening? All that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, he goes and does what God has called him to do. You know, one character that I think of when I read Jeremiah, little different circumstances. Jeremiah's going out unpopular, saying the Lord is going to bring judgment. But then with a message of hope, he will bring restoration ultimately. John the Baptist, you know, fast forward 600 mm -hmm. years, comes with a more positive message uh, in that the kingdom is now here. You know, what Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied is about to happen. But he was also unpopular because he called for repentance. Mm -hmm. And he lived that same hardship kind of life with faithfulness, not knowing exactly how it was going to turn out. Mm -hmm. I really see that that theme run through all the oh, servants yeah. in the Bible. Yeah, Jeremiah is the perfect picture of everyday faithfulness. He's yeah. not the hero standing six six inches off the ground. He's an everyday kind of guy, but he's faithful. Um, he finishes the race well, he's even not, though he doesn't have earthly success. Right, and see, there's a great point, too, and I, I know I'm just getting off the track a little bit, but, you know, in our culture, we tend to, if we aren't careful, we tend to slip into defining the success of our ministry by how many people come to your church or how mm -hmm. big your church is or how many people are in your not-for-profit or how many people are you teaching in your Sunday school class or small group. And, uh, of course, in our culture, Christian culture, it's made small church pastors feel less than. Mm -hmm. But if, if you brought Jeremiah into today, he would be the ultimate small church pastor oh, yeah. in a sense. Very small church, two people, but we both <laughs> left. Um, yeah, and, and, and Jeremiah is one of those people that understands at the, at the core of his identity as a servant of the Lord, he is doing what God has told him to do without any hope of pragmatic results. Right. Now, that doesn't make us anti-pragmatic results. Right. There's obviously ways that pragmatism can run wild, and there are ways that you can allow that to take you off course from what God's, God has called you to do. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we can't make a measurement of saying, if you're being faithful, it will never be successful. Right. And at the same time, we can't say, if you're being faithful, it will always be successful. Right. That's, depending on what criterion we're using. Right. It will always be successful in, in, in terms of God accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Right. But it will not always be successful in any kind of metric that you can measure 
and show to people and they say, well, obviously this is really successful. Now, and this is used both ways. You see people that actually have this kind of idolatry towards unsuccess yeah. as if that's the success, which is not right. true. Uh, the goal is faithfulness. Right. And you can't control the outcomes, but you need to be doing everything you can to accomplish what God has told you to do. Mm-hmm. So whether that means that you have to get away from self-sabotage in some ways, get away from that. Right. And uh, whether that means you have to actually rely on God providing success instead of trying to manufacture things, that may be what you need to do as well. Either way you look at Jeremiah, you're going to be frustrated uh, in terms of worldly success. Good point. So he, he questions God. He goes through a ton for God. He suffers a lot in this book. And part of it is because of the message that he's proclaiming. So let's talk a little bit about what is he actually saying in this book. The first thing that pops out to you if you do read through this book is that he has a very negative message for the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of Israel. They have been unfaithful to God. He calls for them to repent over a hundred times in this book. That is the key to his message is repent. Turn from what you're doing Go back to obeying God, trust Him, love Him, walk in His ways. That's the heart of His message. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what else is He saying to the people of Israel? You know, He's going to have this message of repent, judgment is coming, and that's not negotiable. You know, it's not like an Isaiah almost a hundred years earlier. You know, repent, Judah, or, or the judgment of God will come on you as well. This is by this time he says the judgment of God is coming, and it's coming in the person of the Babylonians, mm-hmm. and this isn't going to be pleasant. But you need to turn back to God because that's your only hope of survival. And but in a practical political sense, he's basically telling the Israelites, you need to just lay down your arms in front of the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. Don't seal it up. Don't fight against them. This is God's judgment. Not only are they militarily more powerful. Yeah, But God is not going to be here to rescue. They are the instruments of his judgment. And that was extremely unpopular to the powers of the day. Mm-hmm. So not only is it God's judgment is coming, it took the form of, quote, meddling in politics by saying, our policy should be do your best, make the best peace you can, and endure the, the, uh, the uh, really the exile that's about to happen to mm-hmm. you. It reminds me, this is an important topic that we we don't have time to deal with in this podcast, but that we've dealt with partially before in Habakkuk, and we'll deal with again when we get to the book of Nahum in in a few weeks or a few months, whenever we get to do that one. God, in, in the history of Israel, God is not just working with individuals. Today, we think a lot in categories of, and I think this is healthy, uh, we think in categories of, What can God do through individual believers, or what can he do through the church? It's pretty clear in the prophets that there's another category of what God is going to do in the world, and that is he's going to work through nations. He's going to work through the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. He's going to work through the Assyrians. He's going to work through the Babylonians. I mean, he even talks about here that that Cyrus, who is a pagan, is his chosen instrument to do his will. Right. And you just have to step back and say, there is a category beyond just God is going to accomplish his will through the church. He is the Lord over all the nations of the earth. Now, where this needs some nuance is, so what does that mean for what God is doing through China? 
through Russia, through the right. United States, through the European Union. Those are very difficult questions to ask. But that category is very, very pertinent to right. what God is doing in the prophets. Is He's not just focused on the people of Israel. Right. He's using the nations of the world, the real politics and warfare of the world, to accomplish His purposes. And the people who are undertaking that are viewed and, and explicitly named as God's servants in the Bible. That's a category we don't think of very often, but that is a, very much part of what Jeremiah's message is to the Israelites. Yeah, it's comforting thought in some ways. I mean, it's terrifying to realize we're going to have to go through hard times. I mean, it's even a little reminiscent of Christian life. In this mm-hmm. life, you will have trouble. But in a sense, it's and more deeply, it's very gratifying to know that God is sovereign even over the most evil and most powerful things we can think of in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, as we, as we start to get more specific in his proclamation, I want to take a moment and talk about the covenant that he promises uh, that's coming to the people of Israel. And there are two passages that are really important for this. The first one being Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, verses 1 through 6. And, and this one and the one in chapter 31, 31 through 34, is going to sound really familiar to most of our people listening. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in chapter 23, he says, uh, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And, and he promises them that, that he's gonna, actually going to have shepherds after his own heart who are going to take care of the people of Israel. And he says, Behold, in verse 5, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and so execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Now this is really interesting because this is one of those prophecies in the Old Testament that is actually fulfilled historically and it's fulfilled cosmically mm-hmm. in the life of Jesus. So we see uh, there are a couple of ways that this could be um, fulfilled. First of all, the Lord is our righteousness is the name Zedekiah. So Zedek is righteousness, Yah is Yahweh, the Lord is our righteousness. Zedekiah, in part, is going to fulfill some of this prophecy. Mm -hmm. But obviously he's not going to fulfill it completely. Because the the reign of Zedekiah ends with the conquering of the people of Israel. Now, the reign of Jesus is what we think of when when we say there's a righteous branch coming up from the seed of David, from the stump of Jesse is the way that Isaiah puts it. Uh And in his days, the the nations of the earth are going to literally be saved from their sins. Um, But it's going to come through this covenant that God has made in the past with Abraham through the house of David, that he's going to be faithful to his people, and he's going to do that forever. We get a little bit more nuance when we get into chapter 31. And this is the really famous passage in Jeremiah. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will for, I will remember their sin no more. Mm-hmm. So this is sounding a little bit more like the New Testament. It really is. Particularly, uh, just a couple of things. As you think about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus goes beyond the law of Moses into the depths of the human heart. And he goes past our behavior into our heart. I'm also reminded of a great passage by uh, Paul when he talks about circumcision is not circumcision of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart. And so as you see the New Testament, you begin to realize it's not just about the outward behavior. God is truly trying to write a covenant on our heart. Well, and this is the problem that that Paul and Jesus point out with the law, is that the law is external. So the law cannot actually make anyone righteous. It can measure righteousness. It can show righteousness. It can demonstrate righteousness. But the law is incapable of actually making anyone righteous. What God is going to do in this covenant is he is going to actually make people righteous. He is going to change the heart. Where we see in Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to change the heart of of stone. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. Uh, The thing that's so interesting to me here about the covenant that that he's prophesying about in Jeremiah is no one, he says, will have to teach people about knowing the Lord because God will make their hearts in such a way that they will know him. What do we what do we think that's going to look like or when should we expect that to be true because it doesn't seem like we're living in that world right now. Well, it does a, a little bit. Let me say on a macro level, here here's theologically what I see in this is the idea of regenerating us in the sense that the law was sort of like if you want to think about it, it was like um uh, basically one of those fixer-upper shows. In other words, you're in such bad shape, we're going to give you some new windows, we're going to put a coat of paint on, we're going to do something, and that's good. It, it served its purpose. As Paul said, it was a school teacher to get you to Christ. Whereas Jesus Christ is, you know, actually, I'm going to build you a brand new house. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to build it, and you, one of the metaphors in the New Testament is you're all part of this house. Mm-hmm. You're going to be built on the cornerstone of Christ, and you're going to be built into a mighty temple. Right. And so you see, and then you see the idea of regeneration with uh, Nicodemus. You must be born again. Paul saying our old man was crucified, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which God really does change us. But in an even more pragmatic way, I really think the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. is as we read, we discern things spiritually. I think by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God has already begun teaching us. Yeah. Now, in a smaller kind of a way, yes, we have disagreements amongst people today, and Mm -hmm. we have our minds applied to Scripture and our biases applied to that and disagreeing. But when it comes right down to the the essence of the gospel, I don't think that spirit... I'm going to say something bold here. You may disagree. I don't believe that spirit-indwelt believers can disagree on the essence of the faith. I think that's what John is saying in 1 John. No one who has said Jesus is not the Christ... You know, right. loves him. I think that there is a, an essential unity. Now, drawing that boundary would be hard. It's difficult to say where that line is, but there is a line. And yes. that's what Jeremiah is prophesying. First right. John talks about that. Jesus talks about that. For Jeremiah, the, the way I'm thinking about it is, is exactly along the lines of regeneration. This is why the doctrine of regeneration is so important. Uh-huh. Is because you know, Paul probably says it most 
cleanly in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Right. The old has passed away, the new has come. And from that point on, you are an ambassador for God. You're actually on mission from God. You have a relationship with God. You have an authorization from God because of the Holy Spirit that dwells in your heart. So the Spirit does the regenerating and then the indwelling. And so a person who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit is a different person than they were before. This is right. another difference between the Old Covenant with Moses and the New Covenant through Christ. The Old Covenant, the Torah can restrain sin. Yes. And... There's some argument as to how that happens or to the extent that it happens, and Paul obviously spends a lot of time talking about that. But, but what the Spirit does is it gives you a new heart. It, gives you, it actually begins to give you a new nature right? where you want to please God. You want to walk with God. That's what Jeremiah is referring to. Now, I think there's also an eschatological part of this where we're going to live in a new heaven and a new earth mm -hmm. where everyone and so Revelation is clear the nations are going to walk by the light of God's glory at that point that will truly be fulfilled in the sense that we won't have to talk to anybody about knowing God because everyone will know God we will be perfect we will be um, walking in the light of his glory everyone will know God who is there so there's uh, there's several layers of fulfillment to this promise, but but it's fulfilled in our lives in the regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who teaches us what, what Christ has taught, reminds us of truth, gives us a new nature, keeps us tethered to God and to his word. Um, and this is all prophesied 500, 600 years before Christ comes. Christ comes, yeah. And Kind of a side note for today, this is one of the reasons you've probably heard the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. So the moralism is teaching us basically to be better people, and the therapeutic approach to that is that there is a healing within us and a reordering within us. One of the reasons why that is such a challenge to the Christian faith today and Christians who are more moralistic, therapeutic deists, why that's a bad thing is it really doesn't encompass this idea of regeneration. Mm -hmm. It has a little bit more of a humanistic source to it rather than a spirit-driven regeneration. And yeah. so that's just, uh, as long as we're here talking about this, that's one of the problems with moralistic, therapeutic approach to the gospel. It can get, I'm not saying that it can't have some good things in it, but missing out on regeneration is missing out on the essence of the gospel. Right. Well, let's hit one more section uh, before we wrap up here. Suffering in the book of Jeremiah is immense. The, the moment I think of when I think of suffering in Jeremiah is in chapter 20, where one of the chief officials of the city, whose name is Pasher, mm -hmm. has Jeremiah whipped and puts him in the stocks for everybody to mock, and uh, he throws him down into a little pit in a, a water cistern. Uh -huh. And I'll let you talk about this because we've been in a water cistern before, yeah. one very similar to where, where Jeremiah was probably tossed. That would be a pretty miserable place to be. Uh, completely. It would be very dark in that they typically lowered a bucket into it, mm -hmm. get down into it through a little hole. It's cold. Mm -hmm. It's got water in it of some amount, even if it's a dry, which this may very well have not been, uh, had a lot of water. It's going to have some water in it. It's going to be muddy. It yeah. may even have some dead animals down there. I know mm -hmm. it sounds terrible, but bottom line, this is probably one of the most miserable places you can be. 
I don't think there would be anywhere dry to lay down. I just think it would be just agony. It would just be a horrible place to be. And cold, wet, damp, nowhere to lie down, have no idea when or if anybody's coming for you, uh, not like you have any visitation, can't check your social media, you know, there's no Wi-Fi down there. I mean, seriously, yeah. it's, it's just as, as dark and dank a place as you could be. Yeah, I should have looked up the exact verse on this, but when he gets thrown down there, there's a little comment in the text where it says, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Yes. He had to have, think, he had to have thought that he was going to die down there. Yeah. Um, but he gets pulled out. But he has a lot of other suffering, things that you consider overt suffering and not. One of the things that strikes me about him is in chapter 16, you find out that God has told him that he is not to be married because of his prophetic call. Because of the work that God has laid out for him, he is not to be married. And uh, that's a lot. That's suffering. You know, when you think yeah. about that, the cost of being a prophet uh, that he knows from a young age you will never get married because of this call is suffering. Um, one of the more humorous episodes in hindsight, it wasn't humorous for him at the time, but he gets this word from the Lord. This is in the mid-30s of, of the book. He gets this word from the Lord, and he writes this letter to the king and the king's officials in in the capital. So he goes and he reads in the letter, and the, and the king says, oh, that's a really nice thing that you just said. Why don't you let me see what you've written down here? And he gives it to him, and the king then takes a knife and cuts it into strips and th- throws the strips into the fire in front of <laughs> Jeremiah as he's listening. And then they boot him out of there and have him beaten uh-huh. uh, and mock him. And, and Baruch has to go back with another letter a- afterwards. But uh, the, the, the last thing I think that is really unique about the, the book of Jeremiah when it, when it comes to suffering is he didn't just suffer physically and um, spiritually. He there was an element of his suffering that is psychological. Mm-hmm. So you see a couple of times in the book of Jeremiah, he is crying out to God because there are other prophets in the city who are prophesying things that are false, but the people are believing those prophets instead of right. him. And it puts you in this situation, if you try to imagine what that would have been like for Jeremiah, there are other people saying, well, God says this. And you're saying, no, he doesn't. He's saying this. Uh-huh. And the people are like, eh, I don't know, Jeremiah. Their message actually sounds more like what God would say than yours. On, on, from, from, a, from a distance, you think, man, how are the people missing this? You know, right. Jeremiah gives him this prophecy at one point where he says, Hey, if you guys, he's talking to the king and his people, and he says, hey, if you guys will um, make peace with Egypt, then God is going to preserve you from some of the conquering that's going to take place. Right. All you have to do is just go do this. It's going to be fine. God has said, you'll uh-huh. be okay if you do this. And the people are like, no, actually, we just want to stay here. And it goes terribly for them. Right. Because their prophets said, actually, no, God's saying to do nothing. But on a personal level, can you imagine how frustrating it would have been for Jeremiah to get a word from the Lord, to think that he's doing God's work, and then to have people who also say that they're doing God's work saying the exact opposite? And they're more successful. And they're far more successful. They've got people flocking to them. Yeah. I mean, the parallels to today are kind of amazing. If there's an element of his ministry that is really, really similar and relevant to today. That's got to be it. And it's relevant through all time, not yeah. just today. I'm not thinking about anybody in particular today, is that being faithful doesn't doesn't mean there won't be opposition and 
think of the self-doubt mm-hmm. that could have plagued him. Think of the faith, the trust in God that you would have to do when you see other people being incredibly successful preaching, quote, the word of the Lord, and here you are, and no one is listening to you. Yeah. And yet, in chapter 39 of Jeremiah, in time, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army besieged Jerusalem, and two years later, a breach was made in the city wall, Mm -hmm. and they conquered just as Jeremiah said. Right. But it took so many years, and faithfulness is... uh, is not always easy. I think you're right. A lot of it's psychological, and a lot of it is character. And I don't think it's possible without the Holy Spirit strengthening us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to end with a quote. I think this quote comes from Eugene Peterson's book uh, called Run with the Horses, uh-huh. which is probably my favorite book on the book of Jeremiah. I would also recommend John Bright's commentary. It's pretty technical, but the beginning of his commentary is in the anchor Bible commentary uh-huh. series uh, is really good. And, and I could be wrong on this. I didn't write this down in the lesson that I taught on this several years ago where this quote came from, but it sounds like it would come from Peterson's book. Um, he says, Experienced mountaineers have a quiet, regular short step. On the level, it looks petty, but then this step they keep up on and on as they ascend, while the inexperienced townsman hurries along and soon has to stop dead beat with the climb. Do you want to grow in virtue, to serve God, to love Christ? Well, you will grow in and attain these things if you make them a slow and sure and utterly real, a mountain step plod and ascent, willing to have camp for a few weeks or months in spiritual desolation, darkness, and emptiness at different stages in your march for spiritual growth. I think that really, really resonates with what Jeremiah was doing. He wasn't fast, He wasn't successful in the eyes of the world, but he was faithful. Mm -hmm. And he took that plodding, everyday faithfulness. He's a great example for us of what that kind of faithfulness looks like. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Mm-hmm.